You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. In the way of Jesus, it's not necessarily seen in uh, a positive light, right? Uh, we're, we're all trying to do the work of of um, living the way of Jesus in a way that, that would honor God, that people would see, okay, this is actually what biblical kind of Christianity looks like. And so First Peter is written to uh, the church, um, n- not, I want to say in a similar moment, right, because they're, they're dying for their faith. And so we're not necessarily there in the, in the West, in the States, but, but they understand what it means or, or what it feels like to be uh, kind of a religious minority in the moment that they find themselves in. And so we've been walking through, uh, slowly walking through, uh, this book. And so uh, today we're on the, the back part of chapter two and we're going to roll into, uh, we're going to roll into to chapter uh, three. And um, there's a couple of things just, uh, just on the front end. I'm going to, I'm going to dive in here. Okay. Uh, if you're new, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, this is going to be this morning a bit different than normal uh, because I'm going to dive into uh, the back part of two and then we're going to get into to three and it's a lot. And I should, I'm going to go ahead and should go ahead and apologize to my homiletics professor uh, because I'm going to do everything that you're taught not to do in preaching class. So I'm going to, I'm, there's, it's going to be a whirlwind of kind of um, information here and, and topics here. And so I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to tell us a little bit of, th- a little bit of stuff on the front end and then we're going to dive in because our text this morning is dealing with the government slavery and the the relationship between men and women so those those all three like we could do a series on the government we could do a a series uh on on biblical slavery what that means and we could do a series most certainly on men and women i'm gonna do it all this morning but i got a few rules i'm just gonna lay out on the front end so when i get done you're not like hey bro you missed this all right so i just want to be very clear about where we're going so let me pray and then and then we'll get into it god we thank you uh for your scripture um, that you, you, you're communicating to us, you're trying to say something to us, uh, you've, you've given us your word as a means to understand you, as a means to, uh, to live, um, Father. And so our, our greatest desire is that you would be uh, glorified this morning, uh, that you would be made much of, that Jesus would be magnified. It's, it's our real desire. And so would you help us this morning? Uh, we ask for the, just the help of the Holy Spirit um, here to give us uh, ears to hear, a uh, heart to receive, a, a mind to understand uh, this morning. And so we, we, just, um, we just ask of your help. God, we, we, we need it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a few things here. Here's what I want to say on the front end. Uh, a, a couple of things about the text in Scripture that we're going to be uh, looking at. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to First Peter uh, chapter 2. Um, we'll start in 11 and 12, and then we'll kick down from there in a few other places, but I just want to say a few things before we get into it. Um, a, a few times throughout history, the, this passage of Scripture, these passages of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, along with other passages of Scripture, uh, have been used improperly, right? So let's just go, like on the very front end, let's just acknowledge that people have, have used some of the texts that we're going to look at. Um, these texts have been used to encourage the enslavement of people groups, and so we can read these texts on on. The, the instructions to slaves to masters, and, and we naturally want to go slavery in the new world. Totally understandable. We'll talk about it. Totally get that we want to drop immediately to slavery in 
uh, the new world. That's a totally understandable thing. That's not what Peter envisions, and that's not what Peter is talking about. But that's where our brain goes, because we naturally um, would, would think that. Uh, these texts have in the past been used to uh, discourage uh, civil disobedience, right? And there's sinful civil di- disobedience, and there is healthy, God-honoring civil disobedience. But these texts at times can be used um, against this. Uh, these texts have been used to discourage the leadership and validity of women. And so hopefully you'll see as we talk and chat through it, uh, you'll see that that is um, not true. If anything, the gospel message is a message that empowers women like never before. Second thing, okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, these texts are, are hard and complex to understand. And so I, I do want to practice some intellectual integrity on the front end of our talk and just say we don't fully understand everything that's going on here. And, and anyone that tells you, right, um, there, there are certain texts in Scripture that are really complex, really difficult. And if anyone tells you, right, th- this isn't true of all texts in Scripture, but if anyone tells you uh, we, 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 this, this historically complex Scripture, we got it fully dialed in, run away, uh, because it's just not true. So we want to practice some intellectual integrity and say we're not fully sure what exactly is happening. We, we can make some assumptions based on historical evidence and those types of things, uh, but it's important to remember that we are interpreting this uh, the best way that we can. It takes a, a measure of humility to step into these conversations. All right, so that's number two. Uh, number three, I've actually already mentioned it. I'm breaking every sermon rule given. Uh, it's too much. It's going to be a bit of a flyover. And so I apologize to my homiletics professor. Number four, uh, all of us are bringing bias into this. Every single one of us are looking at or reading through our own interpretive lens. And so for some of you, maybe you have a a complete thought out uh, position on some of these things. For others of you, it'll be a first time maybe read through if you're not familiar with the Bible. And, And all of us on the front end have bias when we come to reading the text. I think we can all admit that. Um, anyone that would say, no, I'm a clean slate, bro. No, you're not a clean slate. You have your bias. I have my bias. Uh, We're people made up of trauma, past trauma, of pain, uh, with various um, uh, worldviews, ethic views, all all ethic background, all these things, right? We're all bringing our biases. Number four, number five, uh, Peter, how we doing? We doing good? All right, Peter is writing to real people at a real time in a real place. So these aren't kind of made up people. Context is key. And so Peter had a, a people in mind, he had a government in mind, he had a church in mind. And so does the Bible transcend time and place? Yes, absolutely, right? It's, it's tra- what we call transcultural. It, it, it oversees uh, time. But is it written to a specific audience at a specific time? Yes, in a certain um, context. And so I want to be very uh, clear about that. My, my tendency when it comes to uh, reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, we call it hermeneutics, is what you would call a redemptive movement hermeneutics. So it just simply says that, that the Bible is moving us into a direction of redemption, right? And so it's not always going to, in this we're going to see this morning, it's not always going to um, say exactly what we want it to say, but the arch of the scriptures are moving in a redemptive movement. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we read these texts and we kind of come down on the authors and we want to say, hey, why didn't you just say this and this and this? And what we got to understand is there are people in a certain context at a certain place in time with a certain people, right? So we can stand over and above it or we can recognize the redemptive movement of it. Good so far? All right. Um, number six, that was number five. Number six. Um, 
despite all of this, despite all of this, there is very much something to learn from these texts. Um, I will not this morning be doing a extensive study on government, on slavery, on the re- relational dynamics between men and women. Uh, I'll point some things out along the way, right? Those could all be a whole other series that maybe we just put it on the, the sermon kind of rotation. Um, but there is a underlying, I want to highlight this because this is what I really want to look at this morning. There is a underlying principle of submission here. An underlying um, underlying uh, principle of submission here and so that's what that's what I want us to focus on this morning this idea of submission what is biblical submission and I and I cannot stress this enough Uh, I cannot stress enough the need for believers to lay down our kind of individualistic proclivities that we have and to embrace an ethic that falls more in line with the life of Jesus and that is to embrace a life of submission now, we don't like that. Um, it's not a, not a super thing that we're really comfortable with, um, but it's really, really important. Martin Luther, uh, he wrote a, a track during the Reformation. He was the guy that wrote the thesis on the door. This track was called On the Freedom of a Christian. Listen to what he says about biblical submission. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all and subject to none. And we would go, yes, that's right, I'm subject to none. Yes, and then he says, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. We're like, oh. I don't these two things uh, seem to contradict each other but both are Paul he's going to lean on Paul both are Paul's own statements who says in 1 Corinthians 9 9 for though I am free from all men I have made myself a slave to all now this is strange but it's true and there's a paradox to the fact that Christians are free through submission we're free through service we're free through obedience and we're free through submission to a liberating authority. The the Christian understanding of freedom is completely foreign to what our culture understands. It doesn't make sense. We live, actually, in a particular moment, a particular culture, um, that I I would say most of us as Christians have a difficult time understanding um, this idea of submission ourselves and and, and not even just understanding it, but embracing it. And saying I have a healthy grasp on it. And so I'm, I'm with you. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, if you know anything about the Enneagram. And so my like core fear, it's just a personality, it's just, my core fear is being controlled, right? Now, I don't want to control others, but if I sense someone controlling me, right, it's, on the, it's, it's, it's not good, right? So I'm with you. This idea of biblical submission is a difficult thing. Okay, let's get into the text. First Peter 2, 11 through 12. We're good? We feel good this morning? Okay. You're a visitor. It's great to have you. All right, 11 and 12. Um, First Peter 2, 11 and 12. This is what he says. I opened it in the beginning, but let's read again because it'll be important. He says, Dear friend, I urge you as strangers and exiles, right? So this is what we are. We are strangers. We are citizens of another kingdom, right? Citizens of another kingdom. We're going somewhere else. So he says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul and to conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Okay, so we looked at this passage briefly last week on the tail end of the the sermon, but I do want to point out that Peter is giving instructions to the church and he's saying to them, I want you to conduct yourself with honor 
among non-believers. Now we've got to hold this. We, I want to just hold this in the air as we think about the rest of these things. He says, conduct yourself honorably among non-believers so that some will respond positively and some will respond negatively to you. Do you see that in the text? Conduct yourselves with honor among non-believers. By the way, some will respond negatively and some will lean in and respond positively. We talked about that last week. Now, here's what he's going to do. So 2, 11, and 12, he's going to say, conduct yourself. That's what we just looked at. Now, he's going to give practical details of what this conduct should look like. Okay? Give practical details, right? So, so the Christian faith is not just um, orthodoxy, which would be right belief, but it's orthopraxy, which is right practice. Right? So he wants to, he wants to ground their belief in the fact and, and they're understanding the fact that, okay, you, you have a mission in front of you to live with honor among non-believers so that they'll respond. And now he's going to give the, the, the conduct of what that should look like. He's not simply concerned with them understanding kind of doctrinal things. These are real people who are living their lives trying to figure out how to live this new life in Jesus with a new perspective, with a new ethic. And so they're, they're just, I want, I want you to hear this, they're just trying to figure it out. And Peter is trying to pastor them through it. Okay. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17. Here's, here's where we go. Submit. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to the governors as those sent by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Okay, so he's going to say, don't, they, they, apparently they've got kind of this new freedom that they're beginning to experience um, in, in Jesus, and so, and so don't use this freedom in a way that's improper or incorrect. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. Okay. Peter here, uh, he's going to state what a governing authority should be doing. And if you'll notice in the text, what does it say? It says the governing authority should punish those who do evil and elevate the good. So in, in its best kind of form and practice, it's punishing those who are evil, and it's, it's elevating the good. This is the government at its um, best. Now, the thing that I want you to remember is Peter's writing to uh, a, a group of maybe 100 people living in, in an oppressive Roman government. This is not a democracy. Are you hearing me? This is not the, this is not the U.S., this is not the, that's not the moment that he's writing to. He's writing to a very small group of people living in a, uh, a wicked government that will squash you, that will, de like, destroy you. And, and they're going, okay, how do I, like, how, how do I live within this repressive government? How do I exist within this kind of moment that I'm finding yourself in. And, and so Peter just says, hey, be, let's don't overcomplicate. He says, be good citizens, even in a horrific government. Now we'll talk a little bit about what that means, but he's just saying, be good citizens, even in the midst of living inside of a horrific government. So are you free? 
Yes, you're free. In Jesus, you are free. But he says what? Be wise with your freedom. Be wise with it. Be smart. Don't, don't create chaos. This, this thing, listen. <laughs> Peter's like, this thing will get squashed fast. Be smart. You're free. Understand that. Use it. This is who you are. What does it mean to um, what does it mean to honor the emperor, right? Because he, he gets to the end of that in verse seventeen, and, and he says, "Honor the emperor." Nick, most likely Nero is the the kind of the the uh, governmental leader at this moment. Nero is a really nasty guy. Uh, the city had burned. He blamed it on the Christians. Right? Massive persecution began to be poured out on believers because of of Nero in particular. And so, what does it mean to honor the the emperor? Well, I think. Um, I think the book of Daniel is really instructive here. And, and so if you don't know much about Daniel, Daniel was in Israel. He was an Israelite. And Daniel experienced the, the Babylon exile. So Daniel and his friends, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but Daniel and his friends were, were, were brought out of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. They're brought into captivity in Babylon, and now they're living as literal exiles and strangers in another land. And so the book of Daniel, if you've never read it before, it's a really just kind of in, really interesting kind of look at how do Christians navigate within a, uh, a cultural moment that, that they're, not, they're not the majority in. And it's really fascinating. So the, the king, we, we learn a lot what happened. We learn a lot of what happens to them by the decree that the king sends out uh, about them. So this is Daniel 1, 4. And so the king's going to send out this decree about bringing the, the Israelites into Babylon. And look what he, he says. This is the decree that he says about the exiles. So he says, bring these exiles to me. And this is what I want. He says, bring young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction, all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable. Okay, so a couple things here I want us to notice. He says, capable of serving in the king's palace, and he is to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. So here's what we know happens to Daniel and his friends. They're brought into the Babylonian government. And does it say that they push against everything that's going on in that moment? No. We, we actually know that they learn the literature. Uh, they had the best teachers. They were learning the language in that moment. So they find themselves in exile in, in that moment. And it, they're not getting into the moment and then, and then kind of raising up at that moment. No, no, they're, they're, okay, so they're receiving the teaching. They're understanding the history of Babylon. They're understanding the language of Babylon. Uh, they're, they're serving. It, it says that they're going to serve in the, the king's palace. So they're, they're not, right, they're not fighting against this. They're like, okay, this is where we find ourselves. How do we get familiar here? How do we understand the kind of cultural underpinnings of Babylon? Are we seeing that? This is, how we're, this is what they're doing. They're, they're kind of figuring this out. I, I think this is, um, this is helpful, right? So, so they're in Babylon. They're a part of the fabric of Babylon. But, but their core identity, they recognize they don't belong to Babylon. Um, and, the, and the reason that we know that, right? Because where do we draw the line? That's sometimes the question. It's like, okay, how do we, where do we draw the line in, in the particular moments that we find ourselves in? Uh, well, it came to a point in, in the book of Daniel, we don't have time to go there, but basically what happens, the, the kind of uh, moment of, of, of tension happens is when Daniel and his friends are instructed to, to do what? To bow down to the king. 
And in that moment, right, so they've received the instruction. There, there's a, so for them, they're in it. They're doing the thing. They're doing what they need to do. And then they get to a line. They go, hold on. My, now we're getting into lordship stuff. And the Babylonian king I, is not my king. I, I, I serve Yahweh. And, and, I, and, and so it tells us that Daniel gets caught um, praying. He's still got his rhythm. It's really fascinating. If you look at Daniel, he's still, even though in Babylon, he's still got his rhythm of praying. He's still got the, the things that he was doing, even in Israel. He was still doing those things. And so we, we see this moment of um, disobedience, right? Because the question becomes, does submission, right? So we're le- reading this thing from Peter, and he's saying, hey, submit to your governing authorities, right? And so you kind of get into that, and you're like, okay, let's talk about civil disobedience. Is it right? Is it wrong? Like, what is that? Um, look like is it a good or bad thing for the for the Christian Uh, no civil disobedience is not wrong in in actuality a lot of the good kind of many of the modern conventions of social expectation right that have become now law in the United States they actually happened how through some type of healthy civil disobedience and if, if, if you look back at our kind of um, history, right? So if you look at uh, women's suffrage and rights to vote, you look at the elimination of many barriers to racial uh, inequality, the education of children, right? That the impulse of these movements were largely the result of Christian disappointment and actions. Like the, uh, the, the, the result of a lot of these things was, was like believers going, hold on a second, this isn't lining up with, with what we see in scripture and, and there's this kind of a oppressive thing happening here and so I need to uh, we need to step into that, right? So submission is not, um, submission doesn't mean that we do whatever the, the government says, right? It means we're, we're recognizing, we're noticing, we're doing these types of things. We know uh, from Dr. King, we've talked about uh, Dr. King's speech before, but obviously his most famous speech, I Have a Dream speech, uh, is delivered uh, August 28, 1963 on, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial and, and what did it do? Like, if you, you, everyone knows the speech, it did what? It, it electrified the American public, it solidified support for the civil rights movement, and it helped change American society for good. And King anchored that speech from the front to the back in a biblically-based vendetta against injustice and a plea for justice so that the society would be better. So he anchored it in. So, so, so his mechanism for getting this material out was a a massive act of civil disobedience in the face of a government that had turned its moral head away from the entrenched racial inequality that stood against the government's own constitution guaranteeing the equal rights of all. So in disobeying, King did what? He acted biblically by working against violence and counterculturally why he sought to establish biblical values in a society. We have this, our own example um, in, in Scripture as well, this type of civil disobedience. This comes from Acts chapter 4, 17 and 20. It says this. It says, but so that they would not spread any further. So the religious leaders have gathered uh, some of the earliest uh, followers. It's actually Peter and John in this moment. And, and they basically say to them, hey, you've got to stop talking about it. We're in the control of the religious movement here. And so uh, when you just stop speaking or teaching and doing these things verse 19 look what peter and john it says peter and john answered them acts 4 19 peter and john answered them whether it's right in the sight of god for us to listen to you rather than to god you decide for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard like man we just we're just going to keep pressing forward with the gospel we keep talking about it acts chapter 5 
27 and 29. It says, after they brought them, these early religious uh, Christian leaders, after they brought them in, uh, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, these were religious leaders of the day, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. It's a biblical submission, a submission that honors when we're talking about this kind of governmental moment, right? There, there's, a, there's a dance here. There's a call from Peter to say, okay, be good, respectable citizens. Like, be wise, understand, don't use your freedom uh, in a way to cover up sin. Do, do that wisely while also navigating and understanding, okay, you should be a cultural force in the moment that you find yourself in. And, and sometimes a moment calls you to push back. And it's not dishonoring submission. It's actually for the good of people. It's God-honoring. Uh, Jonathan uh, Edwards, he was um, an uh, early Christian leader. He, he fashioned basically a, a theory in talking about the relationship from, between the Christian and public life. And I, I've actually found this to be pretty helpful. What, what does it look like? And so I, I do want to say this is not extensive, and it doesn't answer all the questions, but I think it's good and helpful as we're thinking about this idea of how do I navigate this idea of submission and operating as a believer uh, in, in kind of public life. Okay, so there are six of these. Um, they'll be on the screen so that you can see them. Number one, this is what he says. He says, Christians have a responsibility to society beyond the walls of the church. Uh, Christians must break through the tendency of isolation that have at times characterized the church. So he says, as believers, we have a responsibility outside of these walls. That's number one. Number two, Christians should not hesitate to join forces with non-Christians in the public square to work towards common moral goods, right? So, so it's important as believers, because uh, I, I genuinely agree with this, why well, it's important as believers to establish our principles, to recognize, okay, here's where we won't compromise, here's where we'll compromise, uh, understand, okay, these things are fundamental to the Christian faith, uh, but cooperation is critical and isolation is to be avoided. So there's moments where we, we pair together with people we may not disagree, we may not agree with on everything, and that's okay. Religious freedom, we should all be for religious freedom. We should be able to partner with whoever is for religious freedom. Right? We're going, no, 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 just religious freedom for us. No, no, everyone. Okay, number three. We doing good? We all right? Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to take a long nap later. All right, number three. Christians support their governments, but re be ready to criticize them when the occasion demands. Right? So once again, we find here a cautious respect. Uh, that Peter invites us, but also the willingness to speak against the policies when the conscience demands that we speak against. Number four, Christians should remember that politics are comparatively unimportant in the long run. So they're important, but in the long run, we, we must recognize the fact, right? Elections, these things matter. They're important. It's important to be involved. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important things that Christians can do is to um, pray that a spiritual waking and a revival and an outpouring of the Spirit would come upon their, their country. So they're important, but comparatively unimportant in the long run. Number five, Christians should be aware of national pride. In the history of the church, there has never truly been a Christian nation. We have to be really careful about this. We, we know this historically, that, that the percentage of actual believers in the new world was somewhere around like 15 to 20 percent 
practicing believers. So we have to be careful against um, a national pride. We, we've seen it. Obviously, in the last few years, we've seen this play out um, in really unhealthy, nasty, terrible ways. And so we don't have to go into, um, into that. Number six, uh, and Edwards, it feels a little out of place, but I think it works. Christians should care for the poor. Uh, it is our responsibility uh, not simply the responsibility of the government that we find ourselves in to care for the marginalized and the poor um, in that. So I think that's an important uh, thing. Again, I, I found these to be uh, super helpful. You can take them, leave them, do whatever you like, but they seem to be a, a good navigation as we think about what does it mean to submit within the governing authority. Okay, let's kick down to 18 and 25. Look at us, man. We're making progress. All right, um, eight, 18 through 25. Let me read it for us. It says house. Okay, so now he's moving to another thing. And he, essentially, he's going to talk about household codes. There are household codes in the Greek world, and he's going to begin to get into some of these household codes. We're at 18. Uh, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only for the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you do wrong and are beaten and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God. Verse 21, for you are called to this uh, because Christ suffered for you. So not called to slavery, called to what he's about to give instruction to. For you are called to this because Christ has suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. That's what you're called to, to follow in Jesus' steps. Verse 22, when he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. So, so Peter's primary concern, hear this. Peter's primary concern is how do you suffer well? Uh, most likely, because Peter uh, writes primarily to those who are enslaved and to women in the second part or the first part of, of chapter three, most likely the church that he's writing to has a large population of those who would be considered enslaved and women in the church. And so the majority of his instruction is given to them because those are the believers he's writing to. He's trying to help them again. Um, grasp this idea of what does it mean to suffer uh, well. How do you picture Jesus while being in really a really difficult circumstance and moment? Now, I mentioned this before. We can't read this passage on, on talking about slavery and enslaved people without thinking about slavery in the modern world. It ju we just go there. Like, it just naturally go there. Uh, I read it. That's where I go. That's understandable. Peter doesn't know that. Peter doesn't know that world. That, that's not a world that he is familiar with. He doesn't know slavery in the West. He doesn't understand slavery um, in the South. This is written to a specific type of people experiencing a specific type of slavery. Most of the slavery that was happening, these would be indentured servants. So these are people that have given themselves over uh, to it. doesn't make it, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just explaining what it was, right? Uh, there, no one should own anyone. Right, let's be very clear on the front end. I'm just explaining what it is. And so these were indentured people were giving themselves over to pay a debt or whatever. This is how their society worked in, the, uh, in this moment. Uh, many of these people would not be slaves their entire life. So they knew, okay, at this point, 
um, this, will, this is going to be over with. I have a, a certain timetable on this. I'm, I'm going to be gone uh, from this. There is a, a time on it. And so Peter's just saying to them, hey, remember that you belong to Christ. Remember, even in the difficulty, that, that you, you belong to him, right? It, it's fascinating when you look at it. Uh, the, so here's what the scriptures do, and this is why I talked about that kind of redemptive movement. And we see it with the, the, the text on women as well. Um, so, so sometimes we, we read this, and, and this is, uh, we read the text, and we're like, man, why didn't he just straight up just ban it, destroy it, break it down, like burn the whole thing down, right? Like sometimes I, that's why I read, I just kind of read that, and I'm, I'm that, that's kind of what I think, right, because I'm looking at it from my standpoint. And the, the thing that you have to understand from the readers from Peter's standpoint are reading this passage, and they're, they're, um, uh, they are heightened to the fact that this is a um, radical text because of how he's addressing those who are enslaved and how he's going to address women. So they read it, and they're, what they're seeing is different than what we're seeing. Because when you look at the text, look what it says. Uh, look what he does here. He restores dignity to those people who were enslaved, who found themselves in slavery at this moment. And, and how do we know that? Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable and actually be very shocking to Peter's audience, um, right? It, he, says, um, he says this, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 21. Again, it's moving, right? It's pushing on the boundaries. It's humanizing these people. He's pointing out their equality and worth. Uh, this is 2.21. It says, for you are called to this, talking to those who enslaved, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So he's writing to him and saying, uh, Christ suffered for you. Like you're a part of the fold. You're, you're in the movement. Your identity is one in the way of Jesus. And now verse 25 says, For you were like sheep going astray. But, but look what it says. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. See the dignity he's giving them. See, his audience would have read this and go like, oh, hold on a second. You're saying this kind of marginalized group of people that uh, have no authority and power, uh, you, Wait, you're saying that they're now a part of the way of Jesus, that they have worth, that, that the, the inheritance that is coming is there. Do you see that? Like this, we got to try and just understand how they're seeing it. We also see this, uh, the book of Philemon is probably the best um, kind of look at this. So Paul, uh, there's a slave named uh, Onesimus who's uh, ran away from his, um, his kind of slave master. And Paul sends him back to his owner. We don't have time to read it, but it's a very short book. It's like, 20 verse, 25 verses um, uh, book. But, but one of the interesting things that Paul sends him back to Philemon, and this is what he says about Onesimus, this slave. Um, he, he doesn't, Paul's not forcing it here, but listen to what he says. He says, Onesimus is my, like my own son. I'm sending you my very heart. Uh, he's a dearly beloved brother. Uh, welcome him as you would welcome me. Uh, any of his wrongs or debts that he has, charge it to my account. You see that? This type of restorative work uh, that, that, Paul is, uh, that Paul is doing here, right? So again, addressing, um, uh, it seems to be a large population of people at the church that Peter's addressing are enslaved people. He just says, don't use your newfound freedom in a way that would dishonor God. Like, uh, understand that you're, you're su there's something about your suffering where there's a type of, of connection with Jesus, right? Now, again, complex we, we don't quite understand all. Okay, let's drop down. Three, one through seven. 
And then I, let me do this. So we'll do three, one, six, seven, and then a couple of principles around submission that you can kind of walk away with. Uh, so it's not just like a seminar. All right, so um, one uh, through seven. It says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. Okay, so it's talking to who? Wives of who? Non-believers. Here, are we seeing that in the text? Uh, talking to, to wives and non-believers. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands so that even if they disobey uh, the word, they may be won over without a word by their way of their lives live when they observe your pure and uh, reverent lives. Verse 3, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles, wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. This would only be an option for wealthy women at this time. This would not be an option for uh, all women. Uh, verse 4, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of its own great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. So it's talking about the, this inner life. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Verse 7, husbands in the same way, uh, live, your, uh, live with your wives in an understandable way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life uh, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, a few things here. Um, talking to wives of unbelieving husbands, uh, he says, remember your worth comes from your interior life, not the exterior, right? Um, it's important. What, is it, what about this idea of a quiet spirit? One German theologian says this about the quiet spirit. He says, the quiet spirit that Peter enjoins here, uh, that Christian wives avoid a cantankerous grumbling that would prevent a non-Christian husband from seeing God's grace and goodness in her behavior. Uh, this expression, however, is not, this is important, this expression, however, is not a virtue assigned in the early churches exclusively to women. In fact, this non-violent disposition uh, was characteristic of the early church in general in, in it, and is but one example of living under the order of the day. So he just says, in, so, okay, so when you find yourselves, writing to these wives, when you find yourselves uh, living with a non-believing husband, again, not moving you to sin. That's not submission. Let's think for a moment, right? It's not, a, it's not moving um, anyone that caught, and we'll look at that in a second, anyone that calls you to sin is not submission, right? That's, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, he's just saying, don't have a, um, have a spirit about you that, is, um, that is, is at your best level honoring to him, that it's honoring to God, that you might move him, right? Um, staying on top of him about this. He's just saying, like, be wise. Again, be wise about how you're operating. What about to husbands? Um, he gives instructions to husbands, but he's, uh, he's actually speaking more about the, the, really the women than anything else, right? And so he... Um, uses this word weaker uh, partner uh, here in this moment. Maybe your translation says a weaker vessel. My daughter loves when we talk about this. Any description I give to her to make sense of that, she's like, I don't, I don't like that. Um, what does that mean, right? It's the gift of a strong daughter. Um, is he talking about physical or, or spiritual here? Uh, all evidence points to physical. He's just simply pointing out the, the majority um, of women physically are not as strong as men, right? I don't know that's super controversial, but he, he's just simply saying that that is um, pointing more to uh, this idea. Again, notice what he does um, in that passage. 
of 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Look at how he elevates women in the same way that he elevated those who were enslaved. He says, husbands in the same way, verse 7, um, husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understandable way uh, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor. And then look what he says about the women. He says, these women are co-heirs of the grace of life. They are um, in a cultural moment where women had no power, had no authority, had no say. And Peter says, these women are co-heirs with you. Co-heirs with you to the promise. And so they deserve honors as co-heirs. Um, this is what Peter's doing here in elevating um, them. Okay. Trying to see what to get here. Let me drop down to the, the principles, but let me give you one really helpful resource if you want to read more on this. Uh, there's a book called uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis by William J. Webb. Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, a really great book, came out, came out about 20 years ago, and it basically is just looking at this redemptive arc. And basically this is what he says. Let me just summarize it for you that you can go back and read it. <laughs> I'm going to summarize a 400-page book. Um, this is like my sermon. So... Uh, this is basically what he says. He basically says, if you look at the redemptive art of the scripture, uh, it says that um, when it comes to slavery and women, it becomes less restrictive. It begins to open up, right? So the movement to abolish slavery came, uh, primarily came from Christians. And they were doing what? They were following the biblical ethic. Uh, women's, women's right to vote, suffer, all of those things came primarily from believers, of recognizing, wait a second, this isn't falling within the arc of the scripture. And so he basically says when it comes to uh, women in slavery, it opens up. When it comes to sexuality, it gets narrower. It gets restrictive, right? Because it can get dangerous when you start talking about what's the redemptive arc, right? So anyways, you can go back and read it. It's great. Okay, two things here. We all good? Everybody good? Feeling good? Great. Don't talk to me afterwards. All right, here we go. I'm just kidding. A um, few things. A couple of thoughts about submission, and then we'll be done. Uh, and they should be on the screen as well so that you have them. Uh, you can go ahead and throw those up. Yeah. Uh, everyone's enslaved to something. Um, everyone. Uh, the Bible makes it clear uh, that no one is really free. Uh, if you go to uh, Romans chapter 6, when Paul's writing to the church at Rome, he says you're either a slave to self, of ego, of sin, or of God. There's no really alternative. None of us are actually in full control of our life. We're all living under the authority of something. So he says we're enslaved to something. If you look at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, um, one of the most crucial commands is, I'm the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me, right? You either worship God, the true God, or you're worshiping something else. So we're all enslaved to this, right? We all, we all get this, right? We've all met people. We know people, even perhaps ourselves, who've been enslaved to our jobs. We've been enslaved to relationships. We've been enslaved to a lifestyle. Uh, we've been enslaved to uh, a perception, Right, And so in a sense, um, everyone has to live for something. You have to live for something. You're submitting to someone. Something is driving you. If there are things in your life uh, that give you meaning and purpose, and if those things were taken away, and if you were to feel like, oh, no, no, like what, what's going on? Like I, I'm, I'm distraught, right? Grief is good. 
Lament is good and healthy, but, it, but if you have things in your life that they were taken away from you and it feels like a spiral to you, feels like a total unhealthy spiral to you, these things are the controlling authority in your life. You've been submitting to them. Number two, commitment brings obligation. You cannot be, this goes without saying, but you cannot be committed to something and it not bring obligation. And so Peter says, think about this, Peter roots all of his submission instructions in the fact that these are believers with a goal. So he says, if you're going to live the way of Jesus, and he's instructing everybody in this particular moment, he says that comes with an obligation. And your responsibility as a Christian is to live in such a way that Jesus would be made much of and that God would be honored. And so if you are uh, committing to the way of Jesus, there is an obligation to do what is necessary. So be good citizens so that the way of Jesus would uh, continue. He instructs the slaves to withstand difficulty, to not use their own spiritual freedom as a reason to sin, and he instructs uh, wives to unbelieving husbands to be thoughtful and godly wives, right? He just says, if you're trying to picture the way of Jesus, you have an obligation here. Thirdly, all submission is secondary to Christ. We've talked about it already. Uh, all of our relationships here are secondary to our Christian relationship, our relationship with God. All of them are secondary. Um, we're doing all of these things. Uh, we're doing all of these things because we're obedient to God. We're not, we're not good Christians because we're obedient to the state or because we're following this or following that. We're, we're, because we're good Christians, we're doing these things. And then fourthly and finally, most important, um, if you read the Bible long enough, you'll see it. Jesus went before us. Um, in every one of these instructions, Jesus has set the example. First uh, Peter 2, 18 and 25, back to that passage, he says, you were called to this, and then what does he do? He amplifies the life of Jesus. He says, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. God's not asking us. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he did not already submit himself to. One of the most popular verses, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, um, it says, Peter uh, says this, or, or Paul says this about Jesus, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death. He leads the way. Jesus leads the way. So you're like, what does this look like? How do I navigate this? How do I do this? Look to Jesus. I mean, oversimplified. It's complex. But look to Jesus. Okay, let's take a few minutes or a few moments this morning, and, and we'll do one more song. But let's just kind of sit, and perhaps uh, this morning... Uh, maybe you're here and you just need to kind of sit under this. Okay, what is it? What does biblical submission look like for me in my own particular context? Right. Uh, I think all of us could, uh, all, of us, all of us can connect perhaps with that first one. How do I submit within a governing authority? Uh, maybe these other ones don't even connect with you. And so maybe in this moment you just need to sit and go, okay, how do I? What does that look like for me? Have I been using my freedom in a way that dishonors God? Um, have I been using my too prideful, my too arrogant? And so let's kind of sit in this moment. I'll invite us to take the bread and cup here in a moment. Why don't you stay, sit where you are and, and pray maybe on that before God, and then we'll, we'll move into our next part.